woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Amos chapter 6, verse 1. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you who came in late, I apologize for the heat. The air conditioner broke. I found it broken this morning. Um, it is a shorter sermon, so uh, hopefully it won't be too unbearable. Woe to those who are at ease uh, in Zion. Zion, as you know, is a nickname for Jerusalem, like how we call New York City the Big Apple or something like that. Do any Alabama cities have a nickname? I was trying to think of one, and I didn't know it. The Bur- okay, that's, that's a better illustration, keeping it closer to home. Just like Birmingham is called the Magic City, uh, Jerusalem is called Zion. It's the capital holy city of the Jewish people in the nation of Israel in Amos' time. And you'll remember that it was in Zion, in Jerusalem, was where the temple that God had commanded to be built stood, where the sacrifices were offered. And so the, because Jerusalem as a city, uh, I've got some weird stuff on here. Jerusalem as a city, what is that? Ugh. Um, forgive me. Um, Jerusalem as a city contained Zion, the temple. It was considered like the holiest place on earth because it was the meeting place between God and man, right? Through the sacrificial system in Amos' time, that was how you got made right before God. That was the place you went to be atoned for, to have um, absolution pronounced over you under the terms of the old covenant. Uh, so, so Zion was, so was the holiest place, the place where God dwelt with his people. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. The Hebrew word that is translated here, ease, um, has sort of the, the, the meaning of reckless ease, wanton luxury. And Amos describes, he gives a picture of what he means by ease. It's not, you know, t- taking a break on a Saturday or something like that. He describes it as stretching out on the ivory couch. Right? This picture of living in vacation mode all the time. A feasting, not just on feast days, but every day. And not drinking alcohol in moderation, but he says, as if you're drinking from a bowl. I mean, it's this sort of over-luscious picture that Amos is describing. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. When he says woe, um, it's clear, I think, that Amos means it in really two different layers. He names three cities. He says... Remember Kalna and Hamat and Gath? Right? Who's ever heard of those cities? I have not. I will Gath we've heard of because of Goliath of Gath. But cities that don't mean anything really to us. But in Amos' day, in the 8th century BC, those were cities that in living memory had once been very prosperous, wealthy cities and had been overrun by a conquering empire and just leveled. I mean, not totally destroyed, but been brought to you know, a pittance of what they were once before. So Amos is bringing to mind what they have seen, that you can be living in the lap of luxury and in a moment's notice it can be taken away. That's why Paul repeats the same truth in 1 Timothy. Don't put your trust in riches. Right? We know just as a matter of observation that they come and go. So Amos is offering the first woe to say, it's not going to be like this forever. Like you're going to get cut down. I love that Johnny Cash song, uh, sooner or later God will cut you down. Do you know that one? It's a good, good song. The second implied meaning of the woe is that the fullness of woe won't just be when the temporal good things are taken away, but when the Jewish people, when God's people come before God on Judgment Day. You can, I hope you saw how all of the lessons today sort of play off each other and are woven together 
um, in a very clear and strong way because this is the message of the story that Jesus told, tells in Luke chapter 16 of Lazarus and the rich man. Abraham says to the rich man, you received good things in your lifetime and now here you are in anguish. Right? Fleshing out that same woe that Amos delivered. Because you lived sort of high on the hog in the lap of luxury, not caring for the needs of those around you, the woe will be here in this life and in the life to come. That's what Amos is prophesying. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Um, What's wonderful about the way the Bible works is God spoke through Amos to warn God's people then, but then God had it written down in the book of Amos so that God's people could continue to receive this prophetic word. That Amos' word wasn't just for 8th century Jews, it's also for us. And one of the ways we see that is by this, this um, the connecting word I think is, is that word Zion. So if Zion means the place where God dwells, under the Old Covenant, that was Jerusalem. Where is that under the New Covenant? His church, right? His body, his church. It says, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. That once there was a single temple in Jerusalem, now all Christians, and especially when we gather, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So woe to those who are at ease in Zion. You see, Amos is prophesying to us. God actually spoke to Amos, not just for the Old Covenant people, but for the New Covenant people, because we are Zion. In fact, um, seeing that connection of that meaning Zion, I hope can unlock a lot of the Old Testament for you, that any time you see the word Zion in the Old Testament, it is almost always also a prophecy and a picture of something that, that uh, pertains to the church, not just to the Old Covenant Jerusalem. Woe to those who are at, at ease in Zion. It's become something I'm still trying to figure out what language describes it best, but there's this sort of parody of real Christianity that sometimes is around in, a, in our culture of this sort of fabulous, luxurious American life that then has a little bit of nice Christianity on the top, like a bit of icing on the cake, just to make it even more blessed. I was like, ah, the Christian life isn't supposed to be one of ease. Right? That's why Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 says to Timothy, Fight the good fight. Those are the antonyms, right? Not a life of ease, but a fight. I think a struggle, a contest. Um, sometimes people ask, you know, Father Ben, why do you always pick like the difficult, challenging verses to preach on? And it's because that's what the Bible's full of. <laughs> because it's intended to be a fight. If the Christian life feels really easy, probably you haven't fully grasped it. Right? There's an element of daily struggle of daily fighting. It's the opposite of ease. I want to offer that I think there's three things um, out there that, um, that, that render the Christian life more like a fight and less like a life of ease. Three things that can remove ease from Zion. Um, the first is opposition. And lest we forget, um, 250 million Christians woke up this morning living in a setting that was hostile to their faith, explicitly hostile, in, in, a, in, a, in a nation or a region where persecution was normal for Christianity. 250 million, that's one in nine of every Christian on this planet, woke up sort of concerned that their life, their well-being was under threat because of their faith. 
Last year, 4,136 Christians were killed for their Christian beliefs. There are still martyrs today. It's not just St. Stephen in the book of Acts. It's Christians in Iran, in North Korea, in Afghanistan. Um, Open Doors has a watch list of the nations that are persecuting Christians the most. You can look it up. In these countries, often because of Islamic oppression, Christians have to meet in secrecy. They have to be furtive and careful about every part of their daily existence because they're Christians and because people know it. Christians who take their faith seriously in Afghanistan, for instance, are not under uh, the risk of receiving Amos's woe. You can't live an easy Christian life in Afghanistan or in Iran. Opposition removes ease from Zion. Um, the second thing is the difficult circumstances. And this can come individually or corporately, as we see. It could be um, disease or a natural disaster. Could be times of austerity financially for the region or for the country. Difficult circumstances can remove the possibility of just living at ease in Zion. And although these are not looked for, no one, we, should ne we never pray for difficult circumstances, we pray for blessing and for good circumstances. But when God permits them to happen, they so often are the means of refining God's church, of strengthening His church and rallying the troops to the fight of faith. Um, difficult circumstances, as uh, is sometimes said, are uh, a feature and not a bug of living the Christian life on this earth. It's uh, barely worth mentioning compared to what so many of our brothers and sisters, the difficulties they put up with on a day-to-day -day basis. But I want to sort of say now that in moving to a new building, some things will be made more difficult. It's a smaller space. It's going to be a bit more cramped. It'll be new and uncomfortable, less pleasant at first. But what I want to offer is that um, that might be a, something the Lord could use to call us away from just living at ease in Zion to keep fighting the good fight of faith. So those two things, opposition and difficult circumstances, they come from outside and we would never wish for them. Um, they're out of our control, right? The third thing I want to offer is within our control. That as well as the life of self-denial that Christ calls each of us to in our individual lives, the Bible actually names another thing that I think takes out that ease factor in Zion. And that is serious generosity. It's what we hear in Paul's encouragement in 1 Timothy chapter 6. That um, Timothy was stationed in Ephesus, which was a wealthy city, where times were good and money was sorted out and people were living in nice homes. And the great temptation then would be to be at ease in Zion. This was the case uh, in in Ephesus in Timothy's time. And this is what Paul says to Timothy. I'll read it to you word for word. Chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. I love that clarifier. In this present age. To be rich now is not to be rich absolutely. Right? That's the, that's the turnabout of Lazarus and the rich man. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty in order to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That's like Kalna and Hamat and Gath of Amos. But on God, who richly, see the word play there, provides us with everything to enjoy. It's a good word. The rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. 
if we are rich, and I was sort of praying, Lord, what's the biblical definition of rich? And Paul actually says in the chapter before, if we have food and clothing, we should be content. Anything above that, we are among the rich. As we are rich, generosity is one of the chief means of reducing the ease of Zion. I mean, serious generosity, that if we are giving enough away to charities, to the poor, to the church, that then there's not enough left over to just eat high on the hog every day. Do you see how that works? That you can actually reduce the risk of coming under Amos' woe through generosity. We don't have to wait for persecution to come. God forbid. Persecution will be terrible. We can actually um, avoid a life of ease by being really generous. By being really generous. That's, I love that that's the command that Paul gives, to be generous and ready to share. Um, generosity is a vague word. How much? When? And if you're like me, I kind of think like Peter. Um, you know, Jesus says forgive, and he says, well, how many times? You know, when the Bible says be generous, it's like, okay, God, how many dollars? <laughs> I can't answer that question. All I can do, I think, is hold up the story of Lazarus and the rich man. The, the only fault we see with the rich man is twofold, <laughs> that he feasted sumptuously every day and he ignored the needs that were right in front of him. He ignored, ignored the needs that were right in front of him. The very concrete man, Lazarus. So I, I trust that if you want to know how generous should I be, and that if you read this story and discuss it in your chapter meetings and meditate on it by yourself, the Lord will communicate to you how generous you should be. To not be like the rich man. To not fall under the woes of Amos. To not be like Kalna and Hamat and Gath. The Lord will show you if you ask him. It's one of the great prayers to pray. And it's why, you know, sometimes when I see, um, when I get a letter from a pastor and it's got kind of Christian verbiage, I sometimes think, oh, that's just Christianese. It's actually serious words, like on a pledge form, when it says, pray about what you should give before you do it. That's serious. It's a really serious uh, uh, invitation to say, Lord, what would it look like to be generous this year towards the church? What would it look like to be generous this year towards the poor? Through whatever means the Lord has brought you into contact with the poor. Maybe it's a nonprofit that you serve that you serve in some way. Maybe it's some poor family that you support directly. I don't know what it is. But to ask the Lord, Lord, how, what, what does serious generosity look like this year, today? We ask God that prayer. It's a thing that Christians should always kind of keep on the, the burner of the mind so that we cannot fall under Amos's condemnation of woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Amen.